Hi there, I'm Haley. And I'm Sophie. And we are your Perspectives podcast hosts. The Perspectives podcast is a graduate-run program exploring various public health topics in an effort to learn from experts in the field and the community from varied backgrounds and areas of inquiry. We explore topics within and outside of standard public health discourse, but our conversations relate to subjects that impact all of us on various levels of well-being. We're glad you're here and we're excited to learn alongside you. Hello, Perspectives podcast listeners. Today's episode is on bone marrow transplants and Be The Match. And I'm joined by Dr. Stavansky, who is a bone marrow transplant doctor and current Be The Match advocate. So to kick things off, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you give us a short introduction about yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Heather Stavansky. I am a pediatric bone marrow transplant physician, and I used to work at the University of Minnesota in the um, pediatric division for a very long time. And last year, I joined Be The Match and the National Marrow Donor Program as the Vice President of Medical Services. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So what interested you in the bone marrow transplant field specifically? Sure. I had an interesting journey to medicine, I would say. I grew up in Minnesota, and then I went to Smith College in Massachusetts as an undergrad. And at that time, I was thinking that I would be going to medical school, but then became really interested in research, so decided to pursue a PhD and actually came to the University of Minnesota in the Molecular Cellular Developmental Biology and Genetics Program, which is a very, we call it the alphabet soup program, and ended up doing immunology for my PhD. But what I realized was that I wanted more than just science. And I then looked back and thought maybe I should go into medicine. So I took a little bit different journey to medicine where I ended up going to medical school when I was 29. And so in medical school at the time, the first year is very basic science oriented. And then in the second year, we start getting involved in some of the pathophysiology of diseases. And I distinctly remember that in our blood pathophysiology course, we had small groups. And my small group leader was Steve Nelson, who is a former pediatric hematologist at uh, Minneapolis Children's. And all of a sudden, it sort of clicked where I knew that I loved children, and I had always thought I was going to go into pediatrics, but I wasn't sure that I would subspecialize. And so then pediatric hematology oncology became a very real possibility for me. So at that time, one of my friends was also doing or had been doing a postdoc in Dr. Paul Orchard's lab, and he is a pediatric bone marrow transplant physician at the University of Minnesota. And so I knew him and contacted him and ended up doing a rotation with him in my third year of medical school. And so really got the first taste of bone marrow transplant back in 2003, where it was very different. And I distinctly remember going to the ward and then also going to the clinic where kids at that time were dying of graft versus host disease. 
And it was much more common back then, as well as also having certain infections where, you know, if you had a fungal disease, frankly, at the time, it was a death sentence. And so it was a really great experience. And then when I finished medical school, I knew I was going to do pediatrics and I even knew I was going to do pediatric oncology. And so when I was a resident at that time, residents were working on the BMT ward during certain rotations. And I loved bone marrow transplant. I loved the science behind it. I loved the relationship that you had with the patients as well as the parents and that the journey that it took you on with them. And so I really knew early on, you know, sort of what my goals were. And then when I was a fellow, I was very fortunate that I was at the University of Minnesota because we had one of the world's renowned bone marrow transplant units for pediatrics and did all sorts of interesting, you know, really cutting edge therapy. And I was able to gain a lot of experience. And I remember my one of, on my first rotation in PEDS BMT when I was a fellow, there were 27 patients on our service, which is a lot. And even though I was working a ton and it was very stressful, I still loved it. So I sort of knew where I was going to go. That was a very long answer. No, that is perfectly fine. So interesting. I think bone marrow transplants, because they're such a long process and there's also so much aftercare, it's such an influential component of medicine. There's so many questions I could branch off of, but I'll keep keep with my script. <laughs> How have you seen bone marrow transplant care evolve in the past 20 years or so? Yes. So it's been pretty exciting to see the changes. One is honestly the the addition of what we call azoles. So where these are types of medicine that can treat fungal infection, where we are now treating patients with high-risk AML, as well as with aplastic anemia early on. So instead of them coming to transplant with these horrible infections, we're able to prevent them. And also, if a patient would have one of those infections during transplant, we are at many times able to treat it. We have also seen really exciting things in pharmacogenomics. So for example, where we would base basically what our dose of drug was based on a patient's weight, we are now able, um, and we've learned a lot where not every patient, even you and I, right, we are going to metabolize different medicines differently. And so we're able to get levels of these medicines in the blood and actually make real-time decisions on changing the doses. And what that does is that ensures that the patient isn't getting too much where it could be toxic to them or too little where it wouldn't work. I would say some of the other exciting things are that our supportive care have gotten much better. So as I've talked about the fungal infections, but also some of the the other infections that patients can get after transplant, such as adenovirus, which is a virus that can cause essentially a common cold in you and me or conjunctivitis in little kids that can honestly kill a bone marrow transplant patient because it causes so many problems. But we also have medicine now that we are able to treat that with, um, as well as different cellular therapy that we can use. The other things that I think have been really exciting, not necessarily for transplant, but our cell therapy, where 
patients with a certain type of leukemia called acute lymphoblastic leukemia that has a protein on its cell surface called CD19. There is chimeric antigen receptor therapy for these patients, which what that means is that it could get these patients that have never been able to get into a remission and would not be able to undergo transplant to actually get into a deep enough remission so then they would be able to survive. So it's been really neat, I would say, and truly life-changing, right, for patients, which is very exciting. And just that we're able to try to ensure that patients live longer, as well as mitigating the complications that come along with transplant. Could you touch just a little bit more about the complications that can come out of a transplant, such as gravitas host, and how to potentially prevent that as well? Sure. Patients can get something called graft-versus-host disease, and what that is, is that's where the new cells in the body are essentially rejecting it. They don't like it. And so it's mediated by T cells that are in the graft and it can manifest in a number of ways. It can just be a skin rash, but that can still even be problematic. It could also be gut graft versus host disease, which is where patients have a lot of diarrhea. Probably don't want to hear this on a podcast, but that's just the reality. I mean, it's a science podcast. It could also manifest in upper GI, which is where there's a lot of vomiting and basically food intolerance. And then it could also be liver graft versus host disease. And essentially, initially, if patients had it, you would automatically treat with steroids. And there have been a number of new medicines that have come along, such as Pregnel, um, other things called Abitacept, um, which is the only FDA approved medicine for graft versus host disease specifically in a mismatched unrelated donor setting. And there is also Jacophy or Ruxolitinib has come along, Ibrutinib. And there's just a lot of exciting things now that we can use to try to treat graft versus host disease. There's also post-transplant cyclophosphamide, which is a medicine that we use for transplant, as well as a lot of other sorts of tumors, but we use it basically to get rid of any of the mature T cells that are given in the graft, and it doesn't kill the other T cells that can be important. So there's a lot of ways that we have changed our way in which we either try to prevent graft versus host disease or treat it. We still have, I would say, a long way to go, especially with chronic graft versus host disease. So that's very different then acute chronic comes on later and it's more of an autoimmune phenomenon. And so mainly adult patients are at higher risk. They typically get peripheral blood stem cells as their graft cell source, as opposed to bone marrow and peripheral blood has a lot more of the mature T cells, but in using the post-transplant cyclophosphamide, hopefully then we're able to try to change that. But we still, like I say, we still have a long way to go, but there's very exciting things that are coming along. Yeah, that's so exciting. It makes such a huge difference. That's such a huge issue after transplant. I know for context for the listeners, my dad had a transplant several years ago and he had graphics host on his skin, but then also in his eyes, Mm -hmm. which was a very interesting complication. He takes these eye drops that Uh I'm not necessarily familiar with the science behind it, but it was a very interesting process. He had to get something spun and 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So trying to figure out those complications and finding ways to treat them, you know, are really important because, you know, before we didn't have the long-term survival that we have now, and now patients are living, you know, after a transplant and living for a very long time. And so we want to make their quality of life as best as possible. Absolutely. So transitioning a bit, how did you get into Be The Match and what led you there? Yeah. So I was looking to change. I had been at the university for 27 years. So, you know, I got my PhD at the university and then did my, actually did a postdoc before medical school just for about nine months and then did medical school residency fellowship and then was staffed there for 11 years. And so I was looking for something different that I could still do transplant, but in a broader way and not necessarily do direct patient care. And I was just very lucky that Be The Match and NMDP had a position open for a physician. And in this position, it really allows me to still do what I love, which is transplant, but do it in a, do it in a different way where I'm much more involved on the donor side. And I would say after coming to Be The Match, I did not realize prior to coming how much goes into finding a donor. It is impressive to say the least on what we honestly do every single day for each of our transplant recipients. And it's more than, you know, oh, you found someone great. It's honestly making sure that the timing fits with the transplant center, making sure that we can then find a place for them to either have their bone marrow or typically it's peripheral blood, you know, more than 80% of our products that we deliver. But then with that, the donor has to go to a physician, you know, and, or a, an advanced practice provider to get their health history done to make sure they're healthy enough. And then honestly, then we have a courier that then delivers that product to the transplant center. And so it's this logistics and what we have done in the face of a pandemic where all of a sudden, you know, flights were not going for example, we needed products to be delivered, right? I mean, this is literally life-saving and what we were able to do during that pandemic has been pretty impressive as well as during hurricanes, during wars, what happens when there's a border closure and that's where the donor's coming from. I mean, it's, it's amazing just what we're able to do. And our goal is to democratize cell therapy and to get whatever a patient needs and I truly believe that that is honestly what our entire company and organization does on a daily basis. And it's, it's everyone that's involved and it's pretty exciting. That is really exciting. How would you say bone marrow transplants and Be The Match was affected by COVID-19? If you could elaborate a bit more on that. Sure. So I think, you know, one of the first things was that we could not deliver fresh products anymore. And so we had a mandate that every product had to be cryopreserved. And the reason for that was because one, if a donor was going to be positive, you know, where would, where would they get collected? They, they couldn't get collected. And what it was, was in order for us to be able to deliver it, it just had to be cryopreserved. We did not have 
the ability to deliver a fresh product because it would not be safe for the donor or essentially for the transplant center. And so that really changed things because prior to COVID, less than 10% of all of the products that were delivered by the NMDP were cryopreserved. Once the pandemic hit, 90% of our products were cryopreserved. So that was a huge shift. And I also think at the time, if there were non-malignant disorders, such as sickle cell disease, or there's a lot of genetic disorders in pediatrics that may not necessarily need to be done right then, then those were held off. Whereas in uh, an acute leukemia situation, you can't necessarily wait when you're ready to go to transplant. And if that's the best time, you really want to go to transplant because you don't want to then get additional toxicity from chemotherapy that you're getting, or what if all of a sudden you get an infection that then doesn't allow a recipient to go to transplant. So it was that change, but we definitely learned a lot. For one thing, um, we still about, I would say 50 to 60% of our products are cryopreserved. And I think what people realized was that when you have a donor that you've asked to donate, you know, this life-saving product, and then something happens with the recipient that then that donor would have to change, you know, like, let's say the recipient wasn't ready for some reason, then all of a sudden the donor, well, they've already taken off work. What if they've already gotten filgrastum, which is what we give to mobilize stem cells in a peripheral blood stem cell product. You may want to actually collect that product now. So then you don't have to worry about it. And one of the concerns with this was that a lot of the products would then not be used and that they would just be sitting in a freezer, but we have not found that to be the case. Less than 4% of products are not used and many of those could still potentially be used. So I think, and then also we have data that has shown that, you know, although fresh is probably still best, that cryopreservation, those products are still able to engraft. There's a delay potentially by a day in neutrophil and platelet engraftment, but there's no difference in overall survival. And so those data were reassuring. However, the one thing that we still prefer fresh is bone marrow, especially for aplastic anemia, because that has been shown to not work as well. And the overall survival is different. And so really, you know, the transplant centers had to change for one thing, then all of a sudden they had to cryopreserve products during the pandemic. And then we also had to change how we deliver products. So it was pretty, it was pretty amazing, I would say. Absolutely. It seems like there's a lot of innovation with the the cryopreservation. I think COVID was a scary time for a lot of transplant patients because of yes. the immunocompromised nature of getting a transplant. And I know that that was definitely the case for my family where we were so scared to get COVID and to bring COVID into our home because right. my dad had so little defense against any sort of illness any sort of virus or viral infection, bacterial infection, fungal infection, etc. But it was encouraging just to see how well hospital systems and bone marrow transplant clinics and units handled the whole situation. Yeah, it was. And it's, and I would say, you know, like we've learned a lot and the pandemic has changed as we've gone on because before we were not seeing as many donors test positive with COVID. 
back in 2020 or 2021, even when we looked. And that was probably because we were still quarantining, right? And we were still masking. Um, Now we have seen an increase in the number of donors that test positive from when they're cleared to when they have to donate. And that has created, you know, some issues, especially for patients that have gotten conditioned and need a fresh product. Because the other issue is that if there are certain apheresis centers and many apheresis centers and collection centers are not willing to collect someone because of what the implications are for that are that is COVID positive for what, you know, on their own health system. And so it's really like navigating this as it goes on. For example, the BA5 variant is so much more infectious and patients don't, you know, or people don't get as sick with it, but at the same time, it's just more infectious and people are sort of getting back to normal, right? You go to the airport, maybe less than 10% of people are wearing a mask, you know, so, and you're in a very confined space. So I think it's, it's just different. Could you give us a short overview of what bone marrow transplants or stem cell transplants are? I think a lot of people think it's a surgery. Sure. So I, that is one of the main questions I would say that I get is, oh, you were in surgery today. And no, actually the only surgery that is part of this would be if a donor is donating bone marrow, because that's a bone marrow harvest. And that is in the operating room, but the actual life-saving product, whether it's peripheral blood stem cells, umbilical cord blood or bone marrow, it's actually like getting blood, right? It's in a bag and it's infused into the vein. So it's infused into a central line as opposed to getting delivered surgically. And depending on what, you know, if it's a frozen product or a fresh product, there can be different different side effects. So for example, in a frozen product, there is something called DMSO, and that is used to preserve the product and make sure that the cells don't die when you freeze them. But when you infuse that, patients can have reactions to it. And typically their blood pressure might go up a little bit and then recipients can vomit and have a headache. I would say we try to pre-medicate with Tylenol and Benadryl, but still and actually high blood pressure, anti-high blood pressure medicine, but patients can still get that. But really it's just, it's kind of, I always say it's anticlimactic because you're waiting, the, the patients are waiting for this day. And then it's literally, it takes less, typically less than an hour, depending on if it's umbilical cord blood, sometimes it takes less than 20 minutes, you know, because it's, it's dripping down by gravity but it's still, it's all of these life-saving stem cells that are there to make the red cells, white cells, and platelets that are, you know, very important from the bone marrow. Anticlimactic is like the perfect word for it, I would say, because especially when patients go through all the conditioning to prepare for the bone marrow or stem cell transplant, you know, it's a lot, a lot of work. And then the day comes and it's like this 30 minutes of just an infusion basically. Yes. Yes. And a lot of times the patients are actually sleeping because they've gotten Benadryl, you know, (laughs) and so they don't even necessarily know that it's happening. And then it's really the waiting, right? It's the waiting for the complications to come and really just waiting for the cells to grow. Mm -hmm. So when would you say that a bone marrow transplant is necessary versus when is it not necessary? 
Sure. I have always said that I am not the physician that a patient wants to see because bone marrow transplant is truly only for those patients that have either refractory leukemia or they have relapsed leukemia where the conventional chemotherapy that has cured, you know, 80% of patients did not work for them. And so the reason that this works is because it's much higher dose and you're also giving, you know, the chemotherapy. So like when, for example, as a pediatrician, most of my patients got what we call myeloablative chemotherapy. And what that means is that it truly wipes out all of the stem cells in their bone marrow. And so they would not be able to make their own red cells, white cells, and platelets unless we gave them a graft source back. And so if you don't have red cells, white cells, and platelets, essentially that's incompatible with life, right? You would die without it. You would constantly need a red cell transfusion, which is not good for you. You would need platelets and you can't live without white cells for very long. But the beauty of transplant is that then, you know, you're getting this myeloablative chemotherapy, which will also kill all of potentially the bad leukemia that is there or the bad cancer that is there if it's a lymphoma. But you're also getting a new stem cell source, which means that there's a new immune system. And that can cause something called graft versus leukemia effect, where the T cells that are in that can then kill any of the remaining leukemia that's there. And so the other reasons to undergo a stem cell transplant is in the case of sickle cell disease, for example, where in sickle cell disease, there's a very wide spectrum of patients that some of them have very few side effects. Some of them have a lot of side effects. And if patients are constantly having side effects, then you would want to give them a stem cell transplant or, or potentially gene therapy is out there now in order for them to just have a better quality of life. I would say other diseases such as adrenaleukodystrophy, Hurler's disease, the um, aplastic anemia. So aplastic anemia is where really for whatever reason, it could be due to a bone marrow failure syndrome, or it could just be idiopathic where your bone marrow is just not making the right cells. And so then you would also need a stem cell transplant. And then, yes. And then other genetic disorders where the enzyme essentially that is missing could be replaced with the bone marrow. But again, you know, we really reserve bone marrow transplant for those patients that truly need it and would die without it is, is really how I say it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. My dad had myelofibrosis. Oh, so, uh-huh. Yeah. Which is something probably you don't see in pediatrics as much. I would Correct. Probably, yeah. More there's scar tissue building up in the bone marrow and right. And yes, transfusion dependent for many years. So just kind of living off of getting blood donations, <laughs> but that's created a lot of long-term issues, you know, with, right. with iron buildup in his organs. And yeah, right. I think that's something that isn't talked about a lot in terms of like transfusions is how many transfusions can you have in your life and still be yeah. okay? Right. Because what I've always said is that essentially each transfusion that a patient gets has enough iron for them for the year, which is a lot of iron. 
you know? And so, because you think about it, if you're getting packed red cells, they're just full of this, you know, amazing iron. But then if you constantly need transfusions, that is going to build up. And then honestly, a lot of my patients that I treated when I was at the University of Minnesota, they would have basically a lot of iron buildup. And then they would actually have to be chelated after transplant, or they would do phlebotomy where they would be giving, you know, essentially a pint of blood every couple of months or every few, you know, or every month or something, depending on what they could tolerate. But because that's the only way to get rid of the iron and the iron can build up in the heart, can build up in the liver. Yeah. And it can build up, you know, really in any organ and you just, then the organs don't function as well. And so you really want them, you know, to function as best as they can. Yeah, it's so interesting. There's just so much science packed into this this system of bone marrow transplants and treatments. But yeah, for a while, my dad was getting transfusions every day, every oh. two weeks. Yeah, platelets are different. Platelets don't have that. And, you know, platelets, um, red cells last longer. They just have a normal, they have a longer half-life. You know, whereas platelets, typically, you know, if you have less than 10 platelets, a normal platelet count is 150,000. If you have less than 10, typically 10,000, then you would need to get transfused. And they typically only last a day or two, but red cells just, they have a longer half-life, but yeah. Yeah. It is so interesting. Was there anything that's been really surprising for you or a really interesting case that you've worked on as a physician? Um, Well, there's always interesting cases. But I think I would say some of the interesting things for me have truly been the impact that transplant has on adolescents and trying to find ways to make that better. I I haven't figured out the best way to do that, but I think, you know, when you're 14 to 17 and you're missing these pivotal times in your life. I think that that can be very hard and we're trying, you know, in the children's hospital, we try to make things for adolescents that are different than the little kids, but it's still, you know, like you're losing, like all of a sudden you can't go to prom, right. Or all of a sudden you're taken away from your graduation. And so I, when I was a practicing physician, I was on the more lenient side, I would say with my patients, because I felt that for their mental health, assuming that they would be well enough and wear a mask and do all of these other things that I really wanted them to be able to have some of those times, just because you don't want to miss your high school graduation, you know? And so we worked really hard to try to make it from a science perspective. I truly believe that once when I was first practicing, you know, in 2010, 2011, and as a fellow, if a patient relapsed after transplant with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, there really wasn't a lot of hope, right? Because they already had gotten myeloablative conditioning. They had had, they had already relapsed before coming to transplant. But with the advent of Kimraya, which is the, you know, it was the first FDA approved CAR T cell therapy that. I could finally give patients hope after transplant that if they relapsed, that there was something that it wasn't the end of the road. And I think that's what's the most exciting thing 
about medicine currently is that there are all of these other options for patients because it is, you know, cancer is really hard. It's, it's a horrible disease. I do not wish it on anyone. And it's been, you know, when I was a treating physician, it, it truly was a privilege to be part of so many of these journeys. And even when patients died, I think grateful to be part of that. And it was hard, you know, because they're small children and, or even if they were an adult, you know, it's, it's hard, but being able to offer hope, I think was a really exciting thing. And also I I think, you know, even with, I'm so grateful for the successes that I have had, but it's the failures, right? And it's not necessarily my failure. It's the failure of the science and why, you know, so why does this patient survive and this patient didn't when they had the same disease, had the same comorbidities, like that's what we need to figure out, I think. And even with, you know, CAR T therapy, where some patients will go have a sustained remission for years, Emily Whitehead, if you haven't heard of Emily Whitehead, she was the first person that ever got CAR T therapy at CHOP. She's still in remission, you know, like 10 or 12 years later. And like, that's amazing. But why did that work? And then why doesn't it work for others? And so, you know, it's the failures always that keep you up at night, but it's, you know, trying to figure out the science. And I still think about how far we've come ever since I was a resident, you know, or a medical student where patients were truly dying of graft versus host disease. And I'm not saying that they're not dying now, but it's fewer because we're better at the infections. Absolutely. Yeah, it is, you know, it is hard, even as a patient or a family member of a patient, because you get close with the other patients that are going through the same experience. It becomes sort of, you're in the clinic or the hospital so much and for such a long period of time that you really do get to know people. Yes. And it is hard to, to see the losses, to lose people that you've become friends with, or you've become friends with their family members. But it is also like that community supports each other, you know, and it's just to have see people have extra time, whether it's a year or five years of life. It It is encouraging for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So where do you envision the future of bone marrow transplant work or research going? So I think, you know, currently what we've what we found and what we're doing now is before it was always worried about, can you find a donor, right? Is there going to be a donor? If you don't have an eight out of an eight donor, what, what does that mean? And now, you know, we're finding out information and very exciting studies that are being sponsored by the national marrow donor program called the access trial, where we're looking at mismatch donors And there was a prelude to this with the 15, it's called the 15 mismatched unrelated donor study and showed, you know, really excellent overall survival with mismatched unrelated donors. And that was with bone marrow. And now we're testing it with peripheral blood. And I think what we're going to find. So from, there's a couple of things. One is access. So everybody needs access to the best therapy. And we have found in many studies that this is not fair, you know, especially for African-Americans, for Hispanics, 
and for other ethnically diverse patient populations? And how do we overcome that? You know, that's one of the first things. And then I think with the science, what we're going to find is that we're going to get much better at find, you know, we'll be able to get mismatched unrelated donors. So everybody will have a donor. And then it's going to be finding the best donor out of those mismatches and how to, you know, how do we increase survival? And then really then backing off. So right now, post-transplant cyclophosphamide is being used regularly, but that isn't without complications. And so then what can we use? Can we decrease the dose of that? Can we do it to one day? What, you know, can we use abatacept in, in these areas? And just figuring out ways to make it easier. And then also living with chronic conditions, right? You, you talked about your dad's dry eyes. What can we do to make dry eyes better, to make you know chronic graft-versus-host disease better so patients that are living with it can have a better quality of life? And I think that's going to be really exciting. And then also, you know, more personalized medicine. And that can be, you know, a spectrum of things. One, you relapse, all of a sudden, there could be your own CAR-T therapy, right? That's going to work. But then also like based on medicine that you should be taking, is that the right medicine, right? We have, for example, if after transplant, if you have high blood pressure, there's certain medicines that you could be given. And then what if that wasn't the right medicine for you? And so I think we're going to learn a lot more about personalized medicine and and really mitigating the complications better. It's exciting to hear about, for sure. So in what ways do you think it is best to support someone going through a transplant? Yeah, there are so many things I think that you could do to help a transplant patient. One is to support the caregivers to give them breaks because it's a lot for them to be in that room all the time, especially, you know, I'm thinking of kids, right. Where one of the parents is potentially still working. The other parent is there the whole time and giving them breaks. And that means, you know, maybe letting them just go have dinner alone or go home to see their other kids or go home to see their other family members doing their laundry, giving to organizations that help with this, you know, so at Be The Match, for example, we have patient support grants, which are amazing. And well, we have a lot of other grants as well, but I think, you know, where these are going directly to patients. So let's say all of a sudden a patient's undergoing transplant and they had to quit their job, right? They're an adult they, or they had to take a leave of absence and they didn't have enough time. So then we can give them a grant that could potentially help them pay their mortgage. Like, so giving to institutions where you know that money is going to get directly to patient care and really remembering that everybody helps in the acute phase, you need to help in the chronic phase, right? Because I think everybody's worried about, oh my gosh, it's transplant day, but no, what about day 60? You know, those patients are potentially still having to go see their doctor relatively frequently. So maybe you bring them to a doctor's appointment to give someone a break. I always say it's the little things that mean a lot, but I I truly believe that where it can be a small, you know, drop them off a meal, maybe go to the pharmacy and pick up their medicines for them, help them just alleviate one of the errands that is constant. 
That's what I would say. And just being a good support. Let them talk. Understand that if they don't feel well, they mean it. They're not making it up. And and I also would say that sometimes people can articulate how they feel, right? They may be tired. They may be just not feeling well because, I mean, transplant is not easy. It's essentially, I always have said, bringing someone to the brink of death and then honestly bringing them back, right? And that's a hard thing to do. For sure. And caregiver burnout is really a thing too. And yes. what you were saying too about everyone being there in the acute stage and then like with the chronic, supporting people in the chronic stage is, I also think such a true thing as well, because I know like for my family, we kind of thought, you know, the physicians gave us like a hundred days is going to be really hard. And then after that, you know, it should be easier. And to some degree that was true, but then the year, two years afterwards, there were still complications, still daily yeah. doctor visits, you know? And so, yeah, even if someone's in remission, for example, cancer impacts your whole life consistently. Mm-hmm. And right. yeah, the ongoing support is really important for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how can people get involved with Be The Match? Yeah. That is, there are so many ways that people can, can get involved and be the match. I love be the match so much. So one is become a donor. We want under 35. We've shown that data has shown that younger donors are better, which sort of makes sense because when you think about it, you know, your stem cells, if you think about bone marrow, a baby's bone marrow is hundred percent full of cells. I'm 51. My bone marrow is only 49% full of cells. That's just the way it goes. And so the younger, the better, and truly the more ethnically diverse, the better too. So I would say one, join the registry. Also, we have Be The Match Biotherapies, which is looking um, at helping companies to realize their dreams and aspirations of getting cell therapy to patients. And so potentially donating for a cell therapy, you know, being willing to do that. Volunteering. So I know this is at the University of Minnesota. I don't know um, how many other people listen, but, you know, have a drive, have a bone marrow drive at your place and get people to know more about it. Giving money, you know, we always want money, of course, but I would say that's just with any other, you know, any nonprofit organization, but truly, you know, I'm proud of where the money goes and where it really goes directly to patients. It's not here to pay my salary. It's going directly to patients and helping them with that. And also, you know, we have a lot of amazing jobs available for people. If you're looking, it's a fantastic place to work. It's been voted, you know, like one of the top places for the last two years. And I would agree You know, coming from a place where I had been for a long time, it was great to be at a, at the NMDP and be the match where we're aligned. Like truly everyone has the same goal. And that is to make sure that each patient that needs a cell therapy is going to get it. And I think there's no one that would disagree with that. And that's, what's really great. So I would say those are the main things, you know, get on the registry, get our word out there. You know, if you hear, if, if you hear a story where someone says, oh, there's, you know, not a match, maybe let people know, well, guess what? We could join the registry or if you have a friend, you know, that's in an African-American community, you know, trying to, um, 
let them know that we would appreciate them to be on the registry, you know, just getting more trust, I would say in the medical system as well. That is so great. Yeah. I hope that through this podcast, we can also get the word out a little bit more and have some more people sign up for the registry since it is, has such an important mission for so many people and so many families. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Do you have anything else to, to add or share with our listeners? No, I just hope that I've imparted that, you know, science and research drive what we do on a daily basis. And I'm proud to be part of an organization that takes research so seriously. And it's really exciting to see, you know, that we are part of changing the way that people potentially practice medicine and to make things safer for patients. Yes. Well, thank you so much again. And we really appreciate you having, having you on this episode. Awesome. Thank you. It's been great. If you would like to learn more about this topic, we've attached resources for you in the description of this episode. Thank you again for joining us today. We hope we'll see you next time.